Have you ever thought, I don't know how I would survive if this or that ever happened? Well, here's how. These are the stories of how people just like you and I have gone through difficult life events and survived. It's a journey of faith, hope, and yes, the power of love. Here is the survival guide for the non-survivor. And hi there, welcome along once again. My name is Greg Fish. It's a pleasure to have you along with us here on the survival guide. You know, the pandemic just cut a swath across our landscape, and I even had my go around with COVID. Uh, I got mine near the beginning of it, spent about a month, actually only two weeks sick, but two weeks because they didn't know what to do with me after I'd been sick. So they said, just just kind of stay inside. Um, but along the course of things, a lot of folks got really sick and we got used to hearing these stories. In fact, I think every one of us is connected with a story of somebody who did not survive COVID. And today's guest is somebody who we didn't think was going to survive. And then he did. And he's a, a great friend of mine. In fact, he was my pastor when in the middle of my career uh, in radio, I made a transition into pastoral ministry. In fact, it's pretty much this man's fault. No, it's not that I'm in that I was in pastoral ministry. Here is Pastor Chet Martin. Pastor Chet, thank you so much for coming along today. Well, hi, Greg. It's very good to be with you. And and that story is definitely, I mean, when you found out I had this calling into ministry, you just wouldn't let it go. And uh, your encouragement really helped me to see that's where I needed to be. Well, it was pretty obvious to me. And then I got to observe you actually at work as a pastor yourself and was very proud of your work. Well, I thank you so much, Chad. When, when I heard that you were in the condition you were in. My heart was broken because I thought I just wanted to speak to uh, this man one more time, and I probably won't have that opportunity, and I, I do have that today. So let me just start with uh, kind of the beginning of the story. Um, tell me about getting sick and the realization that you were going to have to go to the hospital. Well, we had been so careful at the church and— um at home in our private life all during 2020, Avon was the first town in Indiana, and that's where I was pastor at, that had had a COVID case. And in fact, the schools closed and the churches closed. And and uh, then in May of 2020, we started holding outdoor services. And all of our, all of our services at the church were in the parking lot for the rest of the year, and we were keeping distance from one another. And Dawn and I would even have our children and grandchildren over to the house and stay six feet away from them and meet out in the mm -hmm. yard and do things like that. And as winter came on, um, of course, we had to move back inside, but we were still really careful but at a church event near the very end of the year, um, I ended up being exposed to COVID. And um, it was about a week before people of my age were eligible to get the first vaccination in Indiana. Okay. So I hadn't had the chance to do that or anything like that. But um, it, as I say, it was very near the end of December. 
on January 3rd. I remember this precisely because that was on Sunday. We held our service and had decided with the council of our administrative leaders to actually hold that um, online and broadcast it that way to stream it so as not to risk people being exposed to COVID who had gone away for Christmas, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I remember that it was on Sunday and and uh, we did everything from the sanctuary of the church, went home. I had a little part-time job teaching English for an online high school and I was grading papers. And um, my wife was watching a football game, but I wasn't watching that one. But I started coughing, and I coughed several times, and I looked over at my wife, Dawn, and I said, um, you know, this isn't a normal cough for me. I had a cough that was caused my, by my blood pressure med, but that wasn't the same thing. And I remember saying to her, I think I have it. The next morning, um, I called my doctor's office, and I know if I call him real early that he sometimes answers the phone himself. So I called him real early and and told him what the symptoms were, and he said, well, I'm sure you do have it, but you'll probably be okay. But if your blood oxygen level drops under 92, go to the emergency room. Well, we went and bought whatever we needed to have to keep track of that blood oxygen level. And when mine dipped under 92, I didn't want to go to the hospital, like a lot of people. And so I kept trying to treat myself at home. I stayed isolated in the bedroom. And uh, we have a bed that tilts up. And so I sat up and slept in an upright position and actually just kept getting worse. My wife uh, would check my blood oxygen level even through the night. And on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, mine had dropped all the way to 61. Wow. And we decided that if it didn't go back up on Wednesday, that I had to go to the hospital. And so by Wednesday evening, it hadn't gone hadn't gone any lower, but it hadn't, hadn't really gone any higher. So Dawn took me to the hospital, and back then, no one was allowed to go into the hospital with you. And so she had to drop me off at the emergency room entrance, and, and it was uh, probably one of the worst moments of my life, if not the worst, because I was telling her goodbye there outside the hospital. I who had also heard all the stories. The first lady in Indiana who passed away from COVID, I knew her. She was a member of one of our other churches here in town. And I didn't know if I'd ever see my wife again. And I didn't know if I'd ever see any of my children again. And so Mm -hmm. she had to say goodbye and leave me. And I went in and I had a long wait in the Um, emergency room, um, waiting room, and I sent out texts to my kids and stuff like that. And they finally took me back to a room, and and I was in the emergency room room 
for the next 24 hours because the hospital was so full, primarily of COVID patients. And they told me that, yes, I had COVID. The test showed that, but they thought that I had the best case of anybody. Now, I since have come to the opinion, and it's only an opinion. I think they were telling me that to try to keep my spirits up. Because every step along the way, they said, well, yeah, you're in the, we have to move you up to the progressive care floor, but you're still the best one on the progressive care floor. And we have to put you in intensive care, but everyone else in here is sicker than you are. And and then about six days after I went to the hospital, five or six days, they told me that they were going to have to put me on a ventilator. Hmm. And um, so I, I remember sitting in the bed, the doctor talking to me, and I said, doctor, am I going to die? And he said, I hope not. And that that was the best that he would say. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked him if he changed his mind and he thought I was going to die. Uh, would you let me see my wife and children? And he said that he would take care of that. He was very gracious about that. And then I was intubated. And what I'm going to tell you about being intubated all comes from other people. Because from that moment on, I have no memory until I started to wake up from it. I know some people say that they remember hearing things, and and I don't. I I have no memory from that point on. And um, after I had been placed on the ventilator, two or three days later, they called my wife and told her that um, I might not make it through the day, that things were going to go. I don't know what they were doing, but things were going to go one way or the other. And if they went one way, that'd be good. But if it went the other way, then it could go pretty fast. And I know she asked them, we have one daughter who lives in Southern Michigan. And uh, she asked if she would have time to get here. And he said, yes, but I would call her now. And so uh, that was the first day that my family gathered together, thinking that I might not make it through the day. Um, After that, I don't believe my wife could answer the phone when it was from the hospital. I think from that point on, um, she had asked them to call our son, Zach, um, and he was the one who fielded the calls and passed on the information. Um, after that day, when I obviously survived and came through that day, then um, it was maybe less than a week later that the same thing happened. And it was virtually the same message that something is going to go one way or the other today. And if it goes well, okay. And if it doesn't, it could be very fast. And part of that was my situation was exacerbated by the reality that I had pneumonia four separate times when I was in the hospital. And I don't mean four bouts of COVID pneumonia. 
I mean, I had other pneumonia four times. Okay. It came from the damage that the COVID pneumonia was doing to my lungs. And I ended up being on that ventilator for almost six weeks, which in my anecdotal conversations with people, I haven't heard of hardly anyone who was on a ventilator that long. But I was. And I assume by, the, by this point, I assume you were on a trach as well? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. When they put me on the ventilator, they intubated the... You can't see the scar real well, but it's right there. And so mm-hmm. the um, machine was breathing for me, and and they would turn my body. Uh, the only movement that I had was they would turn me to where I was laying on my stomach for a shift, and then I would go to laying on my back for a shift. And, and uh, I've seen pictures of myself, and I, I looked... It's pretty grim. It's pretty sobering to see that. At some point, they allowed Dawn and the children to talk to me via FaceTime. The nurses uh, put an iPad up in front of me, and and Dawn and the kids talked to me, and and I have no memory of that at all. Um, but but they did that, and and I do want to say that in all of my experience in that whole year. And it ended up being uh, three different hospitals and a nursing care facility. The healthcare professionals were absolutely wonderful. Um, I think they were very attentive to my needs. And I, I know people uh, have a lot of criticism about some of the things that were done or not done with COVID patients, but I have no criticism because. I would not be here if they had not cared so sure. greatly for me. Um, so I was on that for about six weeks. Wow. And somewhere so- in that, the COVID obviously went away. And then the big challenge was getting me off of the medications and everything uh, that flowed from being on the ventilator. I also was placed on kidney dialysis at that time, and that plays an important part in my story later. Um, One of the doctors uh, told my son, um, and for your audience, my son's also a pastor. Uh, One of the doctors told my son that uh, your dad's kidneys have died, and he will have to be on dialysis for the rest of his life. And Zach looked right back at the doctor and said, well, I don't believe that at all. And uh, I'll tell you later how that turned out. Okay. So we hear other people's stories through the filter of our own stories. And one of the things that's starting to build in my mind as you tell me this is the time that you came along beside me when my wife, Barbara, who eventually passed away, was in the hospital for eight months uh, as I was pastoring under your leadership as then superintendent. And um, I don't remember exactly what you told me during that time, but I remember it was always very comforting and what I needed to hear. What during that time were people speaking into the life of your family that really seemed to be the most helpful to them in dealing with the situation as it was? Well, I don't know if I can give you a really accurate answer because of course I wasn't there. 
I know that the church rallied around my family. Um, they were, and I mean the local church that we're a part of and the conference we're a part of and the denomination. And uh, I know that they were there and encouraged and comforted my family. Uh, my son was working as an associate when I became ill for me, and he had to take over as the pastor. And so he he became not only the uh, full-time support for his mom and his sisters, but also was leading the church. And the church prayed so hard for me. I, I was born on October 1st, and some young lady in the church uh, got the idea that at 10.01 to commemorate my birthday, that they would meet in the parking lot of the hospital and pray for me. Mm. And they did that. And I know that the Light and Life congregation prayed and prayed. I know one day when the call went out that it was a very critical day, one lady told me that she just fell into a chair and just prayed as hard as she had ever prayed um, because it was it was so important to them. I know that yeah. the pastors of my conference prayed and that the superintendent sent out lots of requests. And I know that our board of bishops prayed uh, whenever they talked on the phone, whenever they met in person, they prayed for me. And all across the United States, free Methodists, and there aren't that many of us, you know, but all across the United States, free Methodists prayed for me. And then that went around the world. And I mm -hmm. know that there are little churches in Malawi that might meet under trees, uh, but they prayed for the big chubby white guy who came over there <laughs> one time. Wow. And uh, I, I just appreciate that so much. And, and others, uh, the church in the Philippines, the church in Chile, and uh, I couldn't even tell you where all people prayed for me. And then people in town and other churches, people I didn't right. know had never met. They started praying for me. The church paid my salary every wow. two weeks, just like always, even though I was doing nothing for them. They paid my salary. And when it came to a point that it was time to give them some relief and move me on to uh, an insurance provision that would pick up my salary. Um, there was one month that the annual conference paid my entire salary for the month. And so wow. I, I know that one thing was that Dawn, my wife, never had to worry about finances, the, wow. the church. Wow. So there's two things. The church prayed. They prayed. The church gave generously. And now as to words of encouragement, I don't know. I, I'm sure that Dawn and Zach and Katie and Emily were encouraging each other. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that the church did that as well. So what is the first memory you have then of coming out of COVID? Well, it's funny you should ask that. 
Um, my wife and I were talking about this just this week. My first memory that I have that I guess would indicate that I was still alive was I was I kept having this dream and it was a really at first it was a really nice dream later dreams were not but the first one I had this dream that for some reason I thought I was in China and I thought I was in a missionary's home and I had gotten very very sick but my son was there with me and even while I was sick in bed, he was reading to me. Hmm. And when they allowed family to start coming back in, after I had been removed from the ventilator or was being removed intermittently from the ventilator, they started letting me have company. Zach would come in and he would read to me. I was reading a Tolkien novel before I got sick. And he found that on my desk and just brought it in and picked up from the page where I had left off and read aloud to me. And um, I guess that was the first hint that I had that I was, I didn't know that that meant I was still there. I didn't remember that I had had COVID. And I don't know when that happened. Um, they tell me that I did sometimes seemed to indicate that I knew who they were. I One day when Zach came in, I I called him the same thing that I had called him when he was a little boy. So that, that was very significant to him. But I don't know. I don't have a lot of clear memories about that. Sure, and I went sure. from the main hospital that treated me for COVID. I had to go to um, a rehab hospital. And then I had to go to a third rehab hospital. And I tell people to summarize it, January and February, I mainly slept. March, I was mainly crazy. And April is when I started waking up. And what so, do you mean by crazy, mainly crazy? Uh, well, that pleasant dream morphed into dreams that actually were quite scary. I dreamed that I had been kidnapped. I was I was terrified. I thought I was being held in the basement of a of a big building. I think I had watched too many criminal minds episodes <laughs> back before. Um and I just Every night it was terrifying, and and I would forget that my family had been there because, Greg, and this is this sometimes makes me want to cry when I think about it. From the moment they could visit, there was never five minutes of my visitation time that I did not have someone with me. Now it was primarily my wife and my three children, and only one could come at a time. And only one per day. So whoever came had to stay there for like six hours. But they did. My mom even came once or twice. And yes, my mom's still alive, which, you know, that meant that a much older person was there. My brother came a couple of times, but I was never alone. But I would never remember that when the visitation at that first hospital was from noon 
until 7, I believe. And they would leave at 7, and I probably went right to sleep. But then I would wake up around midnight, and when I woke up, I was back kidnapped, held in the basement, terrified. And I, I was a pain in the neck. I was, I would cry out for help. And, and um, I know my daughter Katie went one day to the nurses uh, and said, I just want you to know that this is not what he's really like. He's really a very nice and and kind person. But that's not what those people would have said about me at that time. Wow. I was just not, I was not me. I didn't recognize, uh, well, one of my favorite stories also involves Katie. She came in to see me and, and I said to her, who are you? And she told me that she was my daughter, Katie. And I said, well, I do remember that I have a daughter named Katie and she kind of looks like you, but if it's really you, where did I take you when you were four years old? And what did you call it? And she says she was standing there praying, oh, Jesus, please help me remember what he's talking <laughs> about. Because <laughs> that had been 34 years ago. Sure, that, sure. And yeah. uh, I had taken her on the train to downtown Chicago, and we had gone to the top of the Sears Tower, which she called the Sirius Tower. And uh, she remembered that, so then... I knew it was her. Another day I told her that I had killed someone and I wasn't sorry at all. And uh, she said, well, why did you kill them? And I said, because they killed one of my children and I'm not sorry. And she said, well, dad, I'm one of your children and I know the other two are okay. So maybe that was just a dream. I think that was the day that they told the nurses to change my TV and never let it be on anything except, you know, like Nickelodeon or uh -huh. stuff like uh -huh. that. But the dreams didn't necessarily fade away. I mean, mm -hmm. I was convinced that I had been in a room in the basement even after I started being more sensible. But my wife reminded me that there was a day when 10 of my 11 grandchildren came and were outside the window of my room. They could not really see in and see me, but I sat there and looked out and saw them and I knew every one of them. I knew what their names were and it was just a wonderful experience. But I forgot it by the time that night fell. So that's what I mean about being crazy gotcha. for that month. And it really didn't change until I went on to the third hospital, and and Dawn and the girls had made two posters for me, and they put all of the kids' pictures, Dawn's picture, my mom's picture, uh, our kids' pictures, and then the grandkid pictures on these posters, and and they put them up on the wall, probably in both hospitals, but I only remember in the second one. And the first night I was there, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was, again, sure I'd been kidnapped, but I was kind of flailing around in bed and I felt the call button. And apparently Chet was coming back because I remember thinking, well, now 
kidnappers certainly would not give you a call button. Call button. (laughs) So I pushed the call button and two nurses swept into the room and I said, where am I? And they told me where I was at. And one of them pointed out the posters on the wall. And from that point on, I know that every time I was confused or scared, I would look over there and I would think, okay, my family knows where I'm at. So I must be all right. And it was about then, Greg, or maybe a week later, that I also started praying again. Because Mm -hmm. all that time, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know what interaction I might have had with the Lord when I was in the coma. But uh, the time that I was crazy, well, I know I prayed one day because I was so depressed. I, in the second hospital, I told Dawn, my wife, that I was just, I felt so bad, I just wanted to die. And she didn't know what to do, so she laid her head down on my shoulder, and she started praying out loud that Jesus would take away my discouragement. And and she says that at the same time, she started praying out loud that Jesus would help me feel better. I started praying out loud that Jesus would just let me die. <laughs> so, So I guess that was my first prayer experience when I started waking up. But then in April at RHI, I started praying. And I I remember one of the first days, I had actually seen a news report that told how many people had died of COVID in the time I was in the hospital. And I remembered by then that I had COVID, that I had had it. And I asked Jesus why I didn't die. I really wanted to know the answer to that. And Greg, just as clearly as I have ever heard the Lord say anything to me, not in an audible voice, but in a voice through his spirit that I have no doubt in, he said, because so many people were praying for you. And... I believe that he also said that he wants me to tell that story every opportunity I get. So people probably are tired of me. I tell people in restaurants. I tell people at gas stations. I tell (laughs) at any store I go to. I try to tell everyone that I get the opportunity. If there's the slightest bit of an open door, I try to tell them because I want them to know that when we pray, God does sometimes do miracles. A lady in our church here in at Light and Life, and your listeners may want to know, by the way, your your sister and her family go to this church. I've actually had the privilege of being the pastor for lots of people in your family. Right. Right. A lady that Stephanie knows really well, uh, a nurse here who was in that first hospital, she says she tells people now my story because She said, there's no medical explanation for my pastor having lived. And that means that prayer works. And that's that's what I want to tell people that it wasn't even my prayer, but it was people praying for me and it worked powerfully. So in this April hospital, the last one, I was still on dialysis. Dialysis for me was a very 
depressing experience. A lot of people say that it's that it drains your energy. Well, it probably did, but at that point I couldn't move, Greg. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't I could move one arm. I could move this arm. This arm I could maybe move that high. I could move my neck. I could not my my legs, I had no control. Mm-hmm. And I was just bedfast and very discouraged. And then the dialysis would make it worse. And um, one Sunday, my aunt called me. And um, she said that she had had what she thought was a vision from God. Now, my aunt has been a Christian my whole life. But my aunt has never told me ever about having a vision from God before this moment. And the fact that it wasn't what she claimed to experience all the time made it actually seem more real to me. She said that she had had a vision that God put his hands into my body and touched my kidneys. Well, the next day, and I, I'm not, this is not preacher exaggeration, this is the absolute truth. The next day, the kidney specialist that I saw every day came in the room and said, you know, your numbers don't look very bad today. We're going to let the dialysis go until tomorrow, and we'll see how you look then. I never had dialysis again. Wow, praise the God. They tell me in that kidney practice, the 10th person to ever come off dialysis. They took the port out, and I've never had it. And I, I just was at a kidney doctor a few weeks ago, and everything's very stable and um, looking good. And so and there's like two health miracles in that span of time. I was so discouraged about ever being able to get up and walk again. When I came home at the end of April, um, had to come in a wheelchair, um, had to have a wheelchair ambulance, had to have a what's called a Hoyer lift, which is kind of like mm-hmm. a hammock on, well, you've probably used them. So it's a hammock kind of deal. And I had to be on a Hoyer lift to get out of my bed, to get into a lift chair. And my life was lived in either the bed or the lift chair. And uh, that was, again, you know, pretty discouraging. But my wife and kids just kept telling me how much I had improved. Every time I said, I can't do something, one of my kids would say, you can't do it yet. And that was encouraging. I mean, they just, they believed when I could not believe. In, um, I don't know how far into this you want me to go, but in June, I actually had to go back to the hospital because mm-hmm. the first COVID, the not the variants that came later, but the first one, the one that the doctors call the nasty one, it not only attacked your lungs, it seemed to attack lots of other things as well. And in the middle of June, I had to go back to the hospital with what we thought was a terrible kidney infection. And they pumped me full of of um, an antibiotic when I got there that they said was one of their most powerful ones. 
but it wasn't a kidney infection. It was a gallbladder that had become so toxic. It was too toxic to even be removed. They had to put a stent in it so it would drain to the outside of my body because they were afraid if they tried to remove the gallbladder that the sepsis would go throughout. And again, now I'm back in end of June, beginning of July, and they're telling me that my life could be lost over that as well. In fact, I sometimes wonder if that my daughter-in-law thinks that was the scariest time. And, and uh, I wonder whether the hospital thought so too, because they allowed like 12 people into the waiting room right before I went back for this procedure. And they, they just don't do that if they think you're going to be coming right back out. So had that happen, ended up being in the hospital again for weeks. And from there, I couldn't come home. I went to um, a nursing care facility. And this is in 21, right? This is all 21. So okay. from January to, well, I'm going to say from January to October 1st, my birthday. So that would be nine months I was in the hospital six and a half of them or the nursing home. I, I just, I was in such bad shape. And, but during that last part, um, right before I had the gallbladder problem and then uh, I started having some health, uh, home health care therapists who were wonderful. I mean, they were absolutely so good. And they worked with me, got me up. They, I had to go back and have the gallbladder removed, but they picked up with me right when I got back from that surgery. And they worked so hard and helped set goals with me. And what were your goals? Well, I, I, want, to, I want to be able to take a shower because I hadn't had one without, well, I, I guess I did in one of the hospitals. They helped me, but I hadn't had one at home. And so we worked really hard to get me into the shower. And I remember I had this young lady who was my uh, occupational therapist and she was helping me. And I told her, she said, okay, tomorrow we're going to take a shower. And I said, okay, but I'm going to wear my swimming trunks because I was embarrassed about being naked in front of her, but I, uh, so I was in there in my swimming trunks and she was standing outside the curtains, making sure I don't fall or anything. And I called out and I said, you know what, with these swimming trunks on, I can't wash the parts that I really want to wash. And so I just <laughs> dragged them off and threw them out. And I said, you know, probably a hundred people have seen me already in the hospital. I'm not going to worry about you. And she said, well, I thought that you would come to that conclusion at some point. <laughs> so she <laughs> how to take a shower. They taught me how to go down. We only have two steps in our house down to um, the family room. And they taught me how to get down those two steps, taught me how to get in the car. They worked with me. I They knew I wanted to go fishing again someday. They worked with me on being able to thread the hook and the line and and those little tiny things were very hard 
because the fine motor skills were just decimated. But they worked and taught me all of that. And, and uh, during that time also, I started very diligently trying to go up to other people that I saw at the rehab hospital that were in rehabilitation uh, therapy themselves. I tried to go up to them and tell them how far I had come and encourage them and promise to pray for them. And some of them I still pray for to this day. Uh, those therapists, they were, they were just wonderful people and they worked hard. And now, Greg, I, I've probably peaked in recovery. I don't know that I'll ever walk much better than I walk now. And if you saw me walking without any help, you'd think that I was trying to imitate Frankenstein's monster or something like that. Mm. Pretty lurchy. But I use a cane most of the time. I I use my walker sometimes. Um, and I go pretty much wherever I want to go. And it was such an effort to get into my car, uh, my wife's car. But now I drive my Ford F-150 pickup truck. And getting into it is a little tricky. I have to have a stool that I step on and then step in. But I drive and uh, I, God has given me back so much of what I thought was gone forever. Uh, there's no way I could say thank you to him enough. And the key behind, the, the only part that we did was my family and friends prayed. You, you prayed for me. And people like you all across the world prayed for me. And, and I worked hard with the therapists. And I relied upon the faith of other people, too because I didn't have the faith that I would get up and walk again. But my wife and children did, and the therapists did. And I relied upon their faith. And God just checked in in such a big way for me. And you just recently returned from a fishing trip to one of your favorite spots, Real Foot Lake. And uh, how did that go? Went great. This Actually, I went there last year, too. And did you? So last year, it took a lot of effort to get me in the boat. Um, but this year, just a little effort. I just needed a little tiny bit of help. But, and again, you know, I've mentioned my children, my two oldest grandchildren, Ethan and Andrew, they have just been so caring and wonderful for me. And one of them, or well, the first year Andrew went fishing, just to make sure that he could help me get in the boat. He doesn't even like fishing that much, mm. but he went mm. to do that. And this year they both went. And again, they are right on me. If they see me moving and they think that I might need any help, it's like I have, it's like I'm a mafia guy with two bodies <laughs> on either side of me. They're my secret service team. One time um, I was walking into the Light and Life Church and I was I was walking in with a cane, but I was I was walking, and and I have a little bit of trouble, or used to have more than I do now. I dragged my foot, and I just fell. I fell right to the floor. Zach was right behind me, 
And then Ethan was not too far on the other side. And before I knew it, the two of them and Dawn had helped me up. And Zachary is whispering in my ear. He says, no, this is not as big of a deal as you think it is. And he was worried that I was going to be really embarrassed. And I might have been if he hadn't said that. But the other thing I thought Mm, right away, I'm being helped to walk by two men that I helped learn to walk and picked up many times when they fell. And there's something just really beautiful about that. Um, And I'm wondering, too, over the years as a pastor, you have helped many, many people who were in times of trauma. And you did the best that you could with what you had to speak God into their life. How has this changed the way you approach people who are now suffering or in trauma? Well, one thing I think that I knew all along in all of those years of helping people that it never does any good to pretend that bad stuff isn't bad. And so, you know, when when I would like come to the hospital with you and Barb, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I'm sure I never said, well, you're going to be up and out of here next week. It's all going to get better. Because, you know, too often it doesn't all get better. And I guess the big thing that my experience with COVID has done for me is that things that I said to people theoretically, I now can say experientially. I know this to be true. I know you're going to be scared. And I was, I was scared. I was scared to die. Here I am a pastor and a Christian for decades. I was scared to die. I was not scared of being dead. And that's a very different thing. I was not frightened of seeing Jesus, but I was frightened of being alone and having to do something that I had never done before. And it was, and grieving because, you know, when you're in that situation, I'm not talking about after I was on the ventilator, but I'm talking about those days before. And I was just like grieving the fact that I would probably never see my children again. I've got all of the text messages that I sent back and forth to them and to others still on my phone. And every now and then I go back and read those. I don't know if that's altogether good for me, but sometimes I just feel like I have to. And I confess to them regularly that I I was scared. Um, And they uh, always encouraged me when um, in August, so long, long after the COVID and and even long after the gallbladder, I I knew that I was getting better in August. Um, My daughter, Emily, posted a um, video on Marco Polo, just like a video texting app. And it was of her children, and I wanted to watch it, so I went on looking for it. But I'm not super tech savvy, and I never found the one that she posted that day. But I found one that she posted 
the first day that they called her and told her that she needed to come home. And um, she said, she said, Daddy, I don't know if you'll ever get to see this. I hope you do, um, but I don't know if you will. But I'm sitting here remembering that when I was growing up, you always told me that I didn't have to go through anything by myself, that Jesus would always be there with me. And she said, I want you to remember that now, that you're not going through this alone, that Jesus is right there in the room with you right now. And I hope I never accidentally delete that video because it just means everything to me. So, so surviving day to day now, um, I'm sure you still have, uh, as you mentioned, some of the uh, ramifications of what you went through. But uh, uh, how is your joy these days? How is your walk with uh, the Father these days, Chet? I'm almost ashamed to say this, Greg, but better than when I was a pastor. Because my time with the Lord today is not geared toward writing a sermon for Sunday. It's not geared toward uh, anything except my personal walk with him. And um, I have a great time in the word every day and in prayer every day and listen to a couple of different uh, daily devotionals and all of those things just enrich my soul. And, the, and I see so many changes in me. I am the most mm-hmm. thankful man I have ever been. I'm thankful for everything. I'm I'm thankful after you and I are done on this day, uh, I have a little outdoor project that I'm going to go. My dog dug some holes in the front yard and I bought some, uh, some topsoil to go out and I'm going to fill those up and pack them. And I am thankful that I get to do that because I almost got to do nothing. Um, I am I go to a kid's uh, band concert or soccer game or or whatever I go to for them. And I am so thankful that I am here to do that. Um, I love my time with my wife. Uh, the Lord has blessed me so much since 2021, since I was sick. We haven't even mentioned this. I don't even know if you know this, but from August 2022 until this spring, May, I actually taught part-time at the local Avon High School, where I think your nephew and nieces all graduated from. Okay, yeah, Uh, I think I heard something about that, yeah. Yeah, they were asking for a part-time person who could actually not teach a class, but, but help students with their English classes. And if you happen to have a teaching license, that'd be great. Well, I do have an English teaching license in Indiana. And so I went and took that job. And I was so thankful for the chance to work with kids again, because I had loved that. I did that before I was a pastor, and I loved it then. I loved it again, loved working with kids. And even though there's such a, uh, you just can't bring up a lot of stuff in the public school setting, every, almost Every class period, at some point, someone would say to me, Mr. Martin, 
what did you do before you came to Avon? And I would, I happened to work in the same room as a lady who goes to the Avon church. And I said, well, I was Mrs. Hamblin's pastor for 14 years. And then they would ask me about that. And then I would get to tell them that I was alive and they're teaching them because people had prayed for me. And I mean, I did not water down that message at all when they asked. I never brought it up until they asked. But when they opened the door, I told them what Jesus had done for me. One final question for you, and just to kind of bring this all together now to a fine point. If somebody says to you today, Pastor Chet, I just don't know how I'm going to make it through this. Realize that every situation is unique. What's the first thing that comes to your mind to say to them? Well, I guess the very first thing is that it's the same thing that Emily told me. If you're trying to go through this alone, you probably can't. But if you commit yourself to going through this, holding on to the hand of Jesus, who loves you more than anyone else has ever loved you, you will be able to survive. You will be able to overcome. He will help you no matter what's at the end, whether I had lived or whether I had died. Jesus was with me and he was never, ever, ever going to let me down. That's the first thing that I would tell them. And the second thing comes more from the, the physical rehabbing part of my um, coming back to health is that all I had to do was do the best I could that day. And they would take me down to the rehab gym and it was so hard and I just couldn't hardly stand up, couldn't hardly walk with, with even all these machines and help they were giving me. I didn't have to get it all the way right that day. I just had to work as hard as I could that day. And so, you know, you got to bite things up into little tiny pieces so that you can, so that you can progress. Um, so I think those would be the two biggest things. And, and also to just rely upon the people that love you, let them help you. Um, my family was, I mean, everyone thinks their family's wonderful. I get that. And everyone should. I'm sorry for those who haven't experienced that, but my wife and children were the most wonderful that anyone could have been to me. Far more wonderful than I probably deserved. And uh, just that love was healing too. So let people love you. Don't close yourself off from that. Sometimes we can hurt so much that we close ourselves off from the people who love us and want to help us. So... And let me just say, I'm, I hope to be able to do a, a whole lot of these interviews over the times ahead, but this will be one that I absolutely treasured because you are such an important person in my life, in my formation, and uh, in you. helping me to uh, be the man that I am today. You are, for better or worse, a part of that, and I'm thankful. I am grateful, and I'm thankful to have this uh, one more conversation with you. 
here today. Well, and, I hope again, that thank we you have for a lot what more... you have brought into my life because you, you will never know yeah. uh, exactly what that has meant to me. But uh, to the degree I can tell you, thank you. Uh, this is a Corbin Cast podcast. And if you'd like to find out more about the Corbin Cast Network, you can check us out at CorbinFosterMedia.com. That's CorbinFosterMedia.com. The uh, uh, URL should be right there for you. Be sure and subscribe and like and review these podcasts. Also, if you are watching on social media, we would love it if you would like and share these with others so that they can get this story as well. And also a, a Corbin Cast podcast that's available on all podcasting platforms as well as YouTube is Greg's Daily Blessing. If you would like to check in with my daily word to you, a, just a brief little story, sometimes a little nonsense and a blessing for your day. Just if you need something good spoken into your day, be sure and check those out as well. Thank you so much for coming along for the Survivor Guide. My name is Greg Fish. Have a wonderful day.